Hi and welcome to Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we talk with Swedish philosophers about their research and their philosophical development. When I say we, I refer to myself, Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University and Martin Jansson, associate professor in theoretical philosophy here at Lund uh, University. Uh, and with us today we have Paulina Remes, a professor in theoretical philosophy uh, in Uppsala. Uh, expert on ancient philosophy. Uh, welcome. Thank you for having me here. And uh, as mentioned in the in the introduction, uh, our intention is to talk about the philosophical development. So we're curious to see where where your philosophical development started and what your first philosophical thoughts were. Well. I've been told by my mother that we drove to the countryside and uh, it was a nice, clear weather, so one could see the stars in the um, I mean, early evening. You know, Scandinavian evenings are very dark. <laughs> and, and I started wondering about space and infinity and those sort of questions. I have no recollection of this, and I think it's relatively usual that children wonder about this what's behind the stars and and something so i don't think that's a sign of some <laughs> really philosophical mind behind anything however i had a an obsession as a child i was pretty obsessed by homer's uh, iliad and odyssey um, i was reading them not in poetry form but in uh, in a sort of more child friendly form and i knew by heart everything in retrospect, one could say that this was a, for me, a pre-philosophical interest because it's all about virtue, um, it's all about consequences of one's actions, quite radical stories about um, how people behave, and there's a question: Why do they behave in this way? And isn't this uh, an exaggerated form of behavior in that situation, or is it a con? proper behavior or not, and where it leads. I mean, how should we assess whether by the consequences? I loved uh, Odysseus, who now uh, I think is a shifty figure, who is some sort of consequentialist doing whatever is needed to get away from Troy. Now, the stories are lovely, um, even without Brad Pitt. <laughs> um, but I do think that there was this, this sort of um, proto-philosophical way of thinking proto-philosophical questions. Um, I used to argue with my mother about this. I mean, she liked Hector much more. I mean, someone who's acting virtuously no matter what the situation and not so thinking about where the consequences so much. So this perhaps was some sort of, um, yeah, philosophical butts in my <laughs> early, early life. I must have been eight or something when I, when I had this obsession. Was that later instrumental for you turning to philosophy or getting more interested in philosophy? Or? Well, I suppose in the sense that, well, my, both, both my parents, I have to admit that I am not a self-made woman. <laughs> both of my parents had done some academic studies. My father, in fact, was a philosopher, a Hint, Jakob Hintika's pupil, but he died when I was four. Um, my mother kept reading me kind of classical. They had met at the Department of Classical Studies and she read these stories to me and bought materials. So, yes, I was led to 
to these issues from home, although I tried to avoid philosophy. I thought philosophy was something my father had done. He had done it brilliantly and I had no intention of trying to compete compete with that because he had this sort of early dying young young genius aura so I thought I would do anything else um, if I could um, so I should have gone and study engineering but I went to classical studies and I thought I was sort of safe from philosophy but that's not how it turned out in the end so how did you end up in philosophy well I read both history and classical studies, and I was really interested in classical archaeology. I did that as my minor. That was hard from from Finland because we don't have <laughs> remains, any remains to, <laughs> to to study in Finland. So it did required always going abroad. And then Juha um, Sihvola, uh, who had also done both philosophy and classical studies, came from. He was a young docent, and he came from US. He had studied in interesting places and he knew everyone, Martha Nussbaum and all the sort of big figures. He came back to Helsinki and started a reading group on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And I suppose that was a turning point. I abandoned my my idea of an MA thesis on Republican um, senatorial building project in Latium, which would have, would have been, taken me much more to Rome, which would have been nice, but, <laughs> <laughs> but which intellectually wasn't very suitable for me, and started thinking about um, look, reading ph- ancient philosophical texts. So... <clears throat> When did you get? When did you you start um, thinking about a career in philosophy? Or I think I had an academic career in my mind very early in something. Um, I thought maybe I. I mean, I as a child I dreamed of um, sort of um, being an archaeologist, finding something really wonderful. So I think it just shifted towards then towards philosophy um, more and more. And I got lucky because I didn't have, I mean, I still don't, I wouldn't get to Uppsala to, as a doctoral. I wouldn't win in, the, in one of these application processes in, in philosophy because I don't have full um, MA or even candidate studies in undergraduate studies in philosophy. I did start immediately after that reading group on on Nicomachean ethics, I started reading other systematic philosophical courses, but I, of course, I didn't do a double MA. And then Juha Sivola, wonderfully enough, had a habit of inviting uh, these international people to Helsinki, and one of them was Richard Sorabchi. And when I had done my MA and I applied for um, doctoral funding, of, I found a particularly funding body that a particular funding body that funds only visits in English universities, preferably old ones like Oxford and Cambridge. And then I applied to both to Oxford and London. And Richard lives in Oxford, but teaches in or taught uh, at the time was still teaching. Now he's emeritus in King's College London, and in. Oxford, they would have taken me to classical studies and not to philosophy. And luckily in London, they took me to philosophy and my choice was clear. I went to London where I could um, 
yeah, do philosophy and, and not immerse myself in more philology, which was also sort of is a tool for me, but not something I'm interested in for its own sake. So did you stay with Aristotle in your PhD project or you? Well, for my MA, I actually wrote something. I was still at the Department of History of all possible departments, and I had to kind of find a way of doing philosophy there that they would accept. So I wrote um, an MA thesis on Epicurean school in Athens, and half of it was a social study on the people who were there. Quite interesting, there were even women um, philosophers living in the in the garden, as it called as it is uh, called Kepos. And half of it was about moral philosophy and the question of friendship and how, because friendship was important as a sort of tie of this community, how did they theorize about that? And that's, it's a problem in the hedonistic framework, because you're supposed to think that the aim of life is to get as much um, pleasure as you can, and pleasure is the absence of pain. Well. Why does he say that long-term friendships are kind of really a good thing? Ones that don't give you immediate pleasure, but where you have to um, invest in order to get something more. And how does he juggle with these, these issues? Uh, I went to London and I had in mind of continuing. Of course, I mean, I didn't know the possibilities available very well. And I, ha I thought I'd maybe I'd do something similar, something about Hellenistic philosophy, which was big in that time. I mean, people had just discovered that there were other, other philosophers after Aristotle and Plato, and that you could work on skepticism, more stoicism, more Epicureanism. And I went to Richard's seminar and Sorabji <laughs> dismissed without a word my, my thoughts. Uh, he was working on on a book on on self in ancient philosophy and individuation and uh, personal identity and those sort of questions. And then he has had this big project for which he's most um, famous for, I suppose, the commentators project, which means that from within King's College come publications and translations of all the very late philosophical texts that we have. So post-Hellenistic era, Roman, but not in Latin, but mostly in Greek, Greek um, commentators on Plato's and Aristotle's works, mostly Aristotle's. So of course he would suggest to me something very fairly late, and I had no idea. I mean, he said, have a look at these few passages in Plotinus, when I said I was interested in the self, and, and um, they turned out to be from Plotinus's Ennads, and I, I thought, I tried to co cover the fact that I had no idea who this person was, whether it was a peripatetic, an Aristotelian philosopher, or a Platonist philosopher, and I went to the library and figured it out. I think many of our listeners might be in a similar situation, so, so please, <laughs> please tell them who, who that was. So Plotinus is a figure that's not well known today in Anglo-American, maybe again today, but say when I was doing these studies in 80s, um, 70s, 80s, 90s, I mean, wasn't read much. He's part of curriculum in France, and you can see his influence in many um, more contemporary continental philosophers, not necessarily continental as phenomenologists, but <laughs> who live in the continent in that sense. Um, 
but he's quite important. He, we know relatively little about his where he came from. We don't know where which city he was from, but he went to Alexandria to do his studies with local thinkers and apparently moved to Rome when and the, all this happens somewhere in the early uh, third century so 200 he, may, he was maybe born 204 207 something like that and um, died later on on, on that <laughs> roughly that period and um, he moved when he was we know that he was roughly 34 or something when he moved to Rome and started his own philosophical school. Why is he important? Why, what turned out to be important? He's the origin of the so-called Neoplatonist school of thought. So he reworked and rethought Platonism in a way that, I mean, of course, historians of philosophers always want to underline that nothing comes out of nothing. There had been similar thoughts already before him. But still, he's, he rethinks Platonism and the school or kind of interpretation that he starts will dominate late antiquity um, to its end. It's the one, it's the form in which Platonism was adopted by the Arabic philosophers, by the Byzantine philosophers, as well as Augustine and the Latin thinkers. So what we, what still in the 19th century or 18th century was thought of as Platonism is very neoplatonical in tone for several reasons. I mean, the influences go all through. One, to mention one besides this, uh, say, Augustine, uh, we could mention Marsilio Ficino, uh, the great Renaissance scholar, who not only translated Plato, but translated also Plotinus. So he's from the, his translations of Plato onwards, I mean, what we have is a Neoplatonist Plato that now I think is uh, crumbling down. And this is one of my kind of favorite topics. I think they, I love Plato and I really like Plotinus, but I think they are doing a very different sort of project and trying to separate these after 2000 years of thinking of them as or maybe not quite 2,000, but almost um, 1,500. Um, thinking of them as similar um, is one, yeah, sort of hobby kind of thing. And one that started in your dissertation? Or? Well, I think that came later uh, through the influences that I that I had in, in, in King's. So on the one hand, I was working with Richard on my thesis topic, which was the philosophy of self in Plotinus. And he's interesting for that topic particularly, and I hope we have time to discuss that a little bit more. But then the other influence was the, that people started reading Plato in a very different way, and, and King's had um, Mary Margaret McCabe, MMM, as everyone calls her, who's a wonderful um, philosopher thinking through Plato again. Um, as well as Verity Hart um, was all, also there. And we had Thursday seminars where we read um, ancient texts, not just Plato, but, but in many terms we read Plato. And 
I can still, when I go to conferences, I can recognize people who come from that same room maybe later than I came because it, it was really influential, sort of taking it seriously, not dogmatically, but looking at each and every claim and what's really in there rather than thinking, having these preconceptions of theory of ideas, uh, immortal soul. I mean, this is what Plato is about. And I'm sort of saying, you know, let's put these aside and let's have a look at what what's in the text. Uh, so can you tell us a little about uh, Plotinus' thoughts on the self, on the self. that you're exploring in your th- thesis? Well, I, I suppose he's a transmission figure in a, in a way, or, or, or a phase where things start changing. So when, um, I mean, the third influence when I went to King's was um, systematical. So there, there was um, philosophy of mind was quite big. Um, so I, I moved to London in 96 and many people who worked uh, on philosophy of mind either worked there or passed by London. I mean, obviously it's a wonderful place to be. So there were materialists of, of different kinds like David Papineau and there were people who, who wanted to retain something else than reductive materialism, like Tim Crane with his ideas on intentionality, that you can't sort of grasp what the phenomenon is about if you want to try to put it into in terms of just brain activities, even though that would be the ontological basis, but there has to be a way of, of talking about it that uh, preserves something important. And many others. And um, this was accompanied at the time, not only in London, but but kind of more generally, with some sort of attack or backlash against the whole notion of self. So we have um, Eric Olson's article on the problem of self, and he's saying that there is no problem of self because there, there are no selves. I mean, we whenever we try to grasp sort of human intuition, where whenever we try to grasp what it is, we get, I mean, all the theories are so different, there's no red thread to be found. And actually, it would be better if we just skip this notion and start using some other notion. Um, there were others, of course, in U.S. Dennett saying that it, if there is a self, it's it's a narration that the brain tells for itself. So it isn't. I mean, ontologically, there are just brains, but perhaps this brain has some sort of capacity to to um, create this fiction that we have a a self. And this was, of course, all directed to what people thought about as Cartesian notion of self, that there's a soul substance and that is what who we are. And then the, the body is not so important. Now, I'm sure that my predecessors in Uppsala, like Lilialanen, wouldn't buy into that crude reading of Descartes. But, but of course, we all recognize sort of roughly um, that kind of um, dualism, um, and the idea of self as some kind of inner realm where where the person has a private access to everything that she's thinking and and so forth. Uh, So the backlash also attacked this idea of of privacy of the mental and some sort of privileged access. The idea that I'm the best judge 
as to what um, I'm thinking that and that everything would be what I all my mental states would be available to me in this privileged way. Now, of course, that can't be true. We have all sorts of uh, mental states which aren't so readily available, and um, and it has to be um, admitted that sometimes people are better judges of what we're thinking um, than what we are ourselves. Nonetheless, it seemed to me that this counter-movement had went too far. I mean, it was very, very reductionist and very... Um, kind of getting rid of all sorts of notions, to have as many as possible, consciousness, self, everything of this kind. Um, and I was interested in views that would retain something, but not by this whole, whole package. In a way, Plotinus... <sighs> does that because ancient philosophers aren't Cartesians. They, they do have souls and they think that souls exist in some very uh, sort of <laughs> crude <laughs> manner. Um, but they don't think that this is necessarily, I mean, it depends whether, whether you call the Aristotelian or the Platonist line, I mean, how, what is the relationship with the body? That's one question. But they don't reify any notion of there's no reification of the self stuff as such. They Pl don't think it's an object. They don't think selves are objects. They don't even have a vocabulary, proper vocabulary for, for this self stuff. And thereby, some people writing about ancient philosophy during that time also said that, see, this is a proof that you can have a highly subtle philosophical framework and a culture which we admire that functions perfectly well without consciousness, without self, or any such notions, we can simply could sort of better grasp these things and discuss these things if we abandon them. Now, there are some problems with that if, if we go that road all the way, even though I have sympathy with, with the project, and it seems to leave some phenomena out. Um, if we think of that privileged access, Stuff. I mean, it's still the case that I do know better what sort of morning I had and what I'm feeling now sitting here with you than, than, I mean, if I want to know what you guys are thinking, I need to ask. So we can't, it's not easy to write away um, or, or somehow demolish this aspect entirely. And the same perhaps goes for the self. Uh, Plotinus was... For me, a way of thinking about these things, because he is, although a Platonist and we could read him just talking about substances and souls and so, stuff like that, but if one reads him carefully, he's quite interested in self-relations. And this, of course, he picks from his tradition. So no vocabulary self, right, but we do have already in the Delphic Oracle, Naughty Seauton, Know Yourself, uh, that's to... In the, at the entrance to, to the temples of Delphi. What does it mean, know yourself? I mean, <clears throat> what's the purport of that? Uh, we have dialogues and works discussing, I mean, self-care, care for yourself. What is the self that we should be caring about? Why is that an important discussion? And Plotinus picks this 
up and is perhaps one could say that he's the first to create some sort of notion of self. He's asking, and he does it with the notion of we. Who are we? He asks. Tines de Hemes. So having discussed the soul, having discussed our intellectual capacities, having discussed our perceptual abilities, he says, well, who are we? So there's a new conceptual turn in an explicit turn, which may or may not be there in classical philosophy, but it is in Plotinus, in trying to say, well, somehow we need to, it's possible at least to ask, among all these things that we've discussed in, within ontology, within philosophical psychology, or sort of their philosophy of mind, what is it that we are? Who are we there? And then um, coming up with, with some answers. Um, basically, he's, it's not a very easy... I mean, in there, he has this Platonist idea that we are roughly, there's a beast in us, the, the embodied thing, and then there's the rational ability. If he was, and sometimes he says that we are the rational ability. So if you are forced to choose between these two alternatives, no Platonist will say that we are the, the beast, we are just our bodily nature. But they will all, all say that we are, the, and even the Aristotelians will say that the soul that is self-moving, uh, capable of rationality and so forth, that will be roughly where, where we are. But Plotinus doesn't, I mean, even though he sometimes makes talks about it in this way of, of kind of choosing between the alternatives, it seems that he's saying something even more interesting, which is that we are the point of identification between these. So we could say that there's an element of narrative selfhood in there. We are what we make ourselves to be. Um, I think Anthony Long writing about Stoics and not about Plotinus, once put it in this way that the most important philo um, philosophical question in antiquity, what to make of oneself? And this is, of course, a pun. You can read it descriptively, what to make of oneself, and you can read it as a point about self-constitution. What am I to make out of my life? And what sort of character, of course, for them, a virtuous character, would I want to build? Um, so there's this normative aspect of selfhood that he that is really important and that he makes also explicit. Look inside, look look at your inner realm, he says. So he's the first to also to start this sort of introspective talk. Look at look inside, and what you see there is not entirely beautiful. You see all sorts of crooked things, vicious uh, tendencies. And then you should act, as he says, as a sculptor of yourself. Sculpt away everything that is bad or vicious or crooked and find out your true self. Now, the difference of this from any narrative, contemporary narrative theories, of course, lies in the teleological structure. There is somewhere there a true statue, a beautiful statue. You can't make, I mean, you can, but you, it's not rational to create whatever sort of self. I mean, you should try and find the true self, which is self-determined, virtuous, good, 
um, not dependent, self-sufficient, not dependent upon anything, anything else. The, the true core of your self-constitution project, one might. And everyone say. has a self like that. Everyone has that. It's just that some people have. Um, well, we we are encased in this, <laughs> the beast, <laughs> and then, and then, um, this requires a lot of um, philosophical work. He thinks. I mean, he thinks that this coincides with becoming more knowledgeable, not just about yourself, but about um, the structure of the universe. So, epistemic development. Well, w- once you understand the universe. You understand your own place in it, and from there you get. Uh, so it's not even though there is this introspective vocabulary, and that's what I meant that he's a sort of figure in tr- in some sort of transfer of the ancient, very universal, objective ways of thinking to something early modern, where we get these ideas about introspection and privacy and and stuff like that. He's somewhere in the middle because he he has the methodology of introspection, but he's thinking that ultimately it will coincide with you do dialectic and you look inwards and you get you will see the full beauty of the of the universe. I mean all the substances and their interrelations and uh, and that will be able to place your own life also in the right perspective and right place. Uh, okay, so once you've explored the self uh, in your dissertation, where, where and you, you um, defend your dissertation, where did that leave you? What kind of questions remained for you? Uh, well, I, for several years afterwards, I, I did work on the thesis over again, because I, I sent it to Cambridge University Press and they were willing to publish it, but of course they demanded all sorts of revisions. And I have to say that was a kind of long, but a really fruitful process. Pretty quickly afterwards, I was asked to to write a... Well, I edited two volumes, one on philosophy of self in antiquity and another one on the history of the notion of consciousness. with other people. So I wrote something about privacy, um, not just in Plotinus, but in, in ancient philosophy more generally, myself, and, and, and worked as, as the editor. I was also asked to, to write an introductory book on Neoplatonism, and that's a kind of more, not a school book, but uh, maybe third year or fourth year or master level um, um, introductory book that for students, which was quite fun because, um, I mean, in a way, I don't recommend doing that sort of thing because, of course, it doesn't today, when one seeks um, employment, I'm not sure how seriously those sort of books are taken. But I, it was nice to think, kind of to put everything that I had learned into practice and kind of write it out. Plus that Neoplatonists, for all their, I mean, they're tedious in their 
multiplication of metaphysical layers. I mean, that's what they're known for, that they, whenever there's a philosophical problem, then <laughs> often the solution is to, cre to create one more level in, or one more entity in the uh, metaphysical system. However, the exact way of, I mean, what I tried to get out in that book was what were the principles that create this, um, this kind of system. I mean, what I've I'd seen before that were introductory books that described the system and who, in, who philosopher in their right mind would be interested in just a list of these these things. I mean, it seems be entirely bizarre and, um, and you have to have a flavor for something very complex if, and maybe not purely a, a philosophical interest if, if one wants to enjoy it from that, that perspective. I, I didn't. I mean, anything that requires memory kind of wears me out very quickly. And, and the full system of, say, Proclus, who was much later than Plotinus, is, is um, awful, I must say. I mean, but they were all brilliant philosophers, and there were certain principles that created this bizarre thing. So I wanted to give the students a possibility of learning those principles rather than uh, looking at that system and thinking, well, blimey, I mean, it's good that these philosophers are no longer in fashion. I mean, <laughs> that sort of thing. After that, um, Are you still in London for this period? Or? Then I had moved home. I was in Hels which is in Helsinki, Finland. Um, I worked in several projects, mostly some of my own and some shared with others, writing mostly about, still about Plotinus, um, a little bit on Plato as well. More and more, I was more and more interested also in. What could yeah? What I we call as maybe philosophical psychology, or it's hard to I mean philosophy of mind, but they don't have the concept of mind as you know. But basically, questions about perception, memory, concept formation, those sort of things. Um, and then, for the heck of it, I applied the Uppsala position. I and I not for a minute thought that I would be chosen, and even if I was chosen, I thought I would not move. I couldn't move to Uppsala because I had a... Um, our first child had already been born and he was five. But it turned out that I was chosen and then I couldn't say no to a... <laughs> to a lectureship. <laughs> yeah, to a lectureship. And I thought I will give it a go one year. Um, Part of this kind of willingness, besides that it's a position, I mean, a lectureship and, and Uppsala is an old and beautiful university, was that there was, Lily Alanen had sought funding for a huge um, Riksbanken program for agency and history of philosophy. So there was both research money and not just teaching, uh, plus that there was a group I mean, not that I would be the only one doing history of philosophy. I mean, social, some social context to, to work on. And that meant that I, during following years, besides trying to get inside the Swedish system and, and, and learning to teach and, and other things, I wrote quite a lot about Neoplatonic theories of 
of action and practical reasoning. Well, that's part I haven't yet published. So um, I am, besides this self stuff, I suppose I am known as as the one person who's trying to bring these neoplatonists down to the ground. So if if there is a way of reading of them which is very mystical in tone and which always underlines that they want to be like like gods and and ultimately when you get to the mystical union with the their first mover, the one, um, you will not stop doing philosophy and so forth and so forth. Um, I, I'm not particularly keen on this reading, or and even if it were right, um, doesn't suit my. I don't think I can contribute much there, um, scientifically or research-wise or academically. So I've I've tried to highlight the text where they do similar stuff that Plato and Aristotle are doing about moral psychology and philosophical psychology and and those sort of issues and dialectic, I mean, what it is, um, epistemology. You mentioned it before here, but do you, I know you're part of a project on human agency. Yes. Yes. What, what is that and why is that interesting? <laughs> well, um, that I kind of inherited from Lili Alanen, who was my predecessor in, in Uppsala. And I was lucky because I suppose agency isn't that far from, from self, so it didn't mean starting with something entirely um, foreign as a philosophical thematic. Now, there are many approaches to it, but I suppose one, one issue is that the similar analogically to self or consciousness, that we can think that agency is something, human agency is something which isn't easy to accommodate within very naturalistic or materialistic or reductive accounts. What it is, it, is it to intend to do something? What is, I mean, Elizabeth Anscombe with intention. I mean, this was something that people started also, I think, 20, 30 years, um, Anscombe even, even earlier, thinking that, that perhaps there, there has to be a way of talking about this um, point of um, activity that uh, is um, goal-directed, that we are, we act not just like robots, I mean, who knows, maybe they are soon agents as well, but um, at least the sort of <laughs> robots we see in, in the movies, um, or that we, that we're accustomed um, to think as sort of simple robots, don't seem to have goals, um, whereas we seem to have goals. And the idea for the project in which all the participants were um, historians of philosophy was to look at different historical phases and how this um, kind of thinking um, appears in, in those people. And I did the ancient part and then there were many others working on early modern conceptions and, and others. So, so what can Plutinos tell us about human agency? Human agency. Well, ancient philosophers are one of their maybe most important distinctions, I suppose, is activity and passivity. And it's often said that they are kind of um, blindly, they blindly think that activity is always better. So whatever you do and you are not suffering, as they say, or it's the pathane that can be translated both as being the object of, of some imprint or some sort of um, change 
that comes from outside, but can also be translated as, as suffering. So in kind of not necessarily painfully, but, but even including that is always worse. And, and so they, their emphasis in many of their writings is how to detect the active side. What in us is the, the point that is able to make decisions. And we have Aristotle thinking about these issues in the Nicomachean Ethics and Plotinus similarly thinking that this, this self-identification with, with reason and with this dialectical work of understanding the nature of the universe will release us from some bonds that we have, release us from... I mean, that he actually does think uh, that there is an aspect of us which is not bound by causal nexuses of the, um, this realm. He's not naive. He's, he, we shouldn't say that, okay, that's a silly thing to think everything. I mean, we could take the line um, of, of many, both historical and contemporary philosophers, and say that's simply not true. Doesn't that lead to sort of Cartesian dualism? He doesn't think that it's an easy... I mean, I suppose he's thinking something like theoretical thoughts and his examples are, are and he doesn't speak directly about mathematics but he speaks about doing theoretical thinking and he thinks that there are kind of moments of doing that sort of thing which really isn't he thinks um, liable to to something like um, external causation but as I said, he's not naive. He's saying, well, these are very short moments when your ch children are trying to, I mean, he didn't have children, but when your children are trying to contact you, then, then your, um, your thinking is <laughs> interrupted, no matter how abstract and theoretical thinking you were doing. So he, he's thinking that this is very, very rare, but that that, that experience might be healthy for your overall outlook on life. You could then think of your life in some different, I mean, having had those experiences, you could think of some decisions in a different way. Um, so in closing, what are you working on currently or what, what's uh, in the future for you? Well, one of the projects that I really would like to have a lot of time to, to engage in is, and this goes back to the idea of, of that I said that Plotinus and Plato have different projects. So if, if Plotinus is this system builder with a very subtle metaphysical system and principles that govern all in there, everything in that system, then we have in Plato someone who works very differently. So we know that most of the works are dialogues. Many of them are aporetic, as, it, as they are called, which means that they end up in some sort of um, aporia, in the kind of not seeing the way in ahead of you. I mean, kind of um, perhaps some bad arguments and some bad um, understandings of moral notions have been abandoned, but there's no positive reply. Even his, what we call later works, no one knows in which order these actually were written, are, are um, often open-ended like Theaetetus or Philebus. They don't offer a full-fetched um, theory. And even in the Republic we get these 
some places where where they say, well, okay, this is is this really the best possible state? And there's a little bit of sort of hesitation. <laughs> Even I mean, we don't need Popper to question. I mean, Plato questions whether this model is realizable. So there's this feature of importance of discussion and the feature of, of open-endedness. And I'm my hypothesis is that even if in some passages we get epistemology which is kind of essence or driven or, or something like that, that there are fixed truths about things, what he thinks rationality is, if we read that out from the dialogues, the way we, the dialogues really look, not from Plotinus's reading of them or, or Marsilia Ficinus, but, but from sort of if we just look at them, it looks as if he's thinking of rationality as essentially social. So it's, it's, it always happens in a group or between two or more people. It uses, the, uses this, um, utilizes this question and answer and all sorts of conversational means. And, um, and this is what it is to be rational or intellectual. This, I mean, that's my hypothesis. And the way I, I'm thinking of trying to prove this is by looking at gathering all the norms that he um, either explicitly or implicitly mentions in the dialogues. He often says, well, say your own opinion. I don't want to hear what you've read in someone other or what you heard in the Agora. Say your own opinion. That's one kind of norm that he often comes back to. Don't give long speeches, speak more <laughs> concisely or something like that. And there are many of them, some, some of them implicit, some of them explicit, and many of them which are later systematized by Aristotle, but we should not think of Aristotle as, I mean, of course, he was familiar with this method, but, but uh, I mean, he might have his own ideas, so we can't use that as an exclusive resource. We should have a look at the the dialogues um, themselves. And I think in this respect, he's surprisingly modern. I mean, there are new theories about rationality as essentially social. And one aspect of this is the, the presence of the other speaker as a personality. So what counts as a good argument for you is not something universal. I, if I want to persuade you, I have to start from some starting point that you agree with and that maybe arises out of your background and out of your ways of thinking. And this is something that later Platonist commentators say that Plato was exceptional about, I mean, his method is exceptional because it's context and person relative. Arguments don't come um, in some sort of universal bubble, even though the forms might, but arguments don't. And, and that this is kind of the, the this is um, interesting feature of what he's doing. And I'm wanting, I, I really would like to sort of get to the bottom of it. And of course, then one also has to tackle the question, well, if we form this social rational picture reading, 
from bottom up, from the dialogues. What are we supposed to do with the passages where he talks about knowledge of forms and, and, and so, I mean, how are they supposed to be within the theory or maybe not, he's not a theory builder, in a, perhaps in the same way as, as some others, but within th the thoughts of one and the same philosopher. But for that, I don't have a question, uh, an answer yet. I see. Um, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you. And we would like to thank Humlabet och Larm Studium for möjligheten att spela in där. Do you have something to say about uh, the road less traveled, perhaps? Um, so the, Paulina will give her lecture today, but once you hear this, it will be too late to attend that particular lecture. But check our webpage www.fail.l.se uh, uh, for upcoming speakers in that lecture series. Thank you.